Welcome to Living Off Course. Join us if you're fascinated by people who break free of societal norms to live life on their own terms. I'm Zita Moran, and with my co-host, Janie Lim, we're exploring what it takes to live a life that's authentically yours. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Living Off Course, where we interview Misha Bayrook, a life and sex coach who I met at one of his workshops on the art of phone sex. Misha is a masterful facilitator and clearly passionate about his work. We recorded this episode in April 2020 during the COVID pandemic when Misha was transitioning his in-person business to the virtual space. Join us as we talk about issues as varied as taking down the patriarchy, men's pleasure, joyful sexual exploration, sex parties as containers for growth, why Misha prefers calling sex parties, the exchange of erotic energy, and what goes on at these virtual erotic energy exchanges. This and much more. Looking forward to it. Let's jump right in. Thank you so much for your work. Truly. (laughs) So like, actually, uh, like, how would you summarize what you do other than magic? Thank you so much. Patriarchy occurs in so many unexpected ways. There's a fabulous, if you've ever read it, uh, Bell Hooks has written about men, masculinity, and love. The book is called The Will to Change, and it's about a 20-year-old book. She's amazing. This author just captures, if I could like spread this book around to the world, like that would be how I would describe my work, is to describe, is to spread the message of this particular book. So what I say on my tagline is that I'm a life and leadership coach for men, which is kind of like more of a palatable kind of description. And it encapsulates my client work, which is rooted in in standard ontological coaching, but with like a pretty specific bent towards illuminating our blind spots around patriarchy and the stories that we've told ourselves about what men need to be. And my work is shifting and evolving. I'm seeing that like involving women makes a lot more sense. I'm seeing that like orienting towards joyful expressions of sexuality through something like phone sex or even these conscious sensuality virtual events that I've been organizing for the last month can be the entry point through which people start to question some of their base assumptions. So it almost feels like my business mission is a consciousness raising one, which is like a weird thing for a business. It it almost feels like I have a nonprofit and it makes sense. I come from a nonprofit background. I have a master of public administration degree from NYU. Like that's my background. And so I've always been really cause oriented and mission that I want to bring to the world has to do with impacting the national conversation around men and sexuality in particular. Yeah, but if I've learned one thing from all of my time in nonprofits and in social change, it's that direct interventions rarely work. You can tackle the problem head on, say, homophobia with like a big public marketing campaign saying like billboards and advertisements saying don't be homophobic. Or you can feature a gay character in a really popular soap opera and watch that be 10 to 20 times more effective than like the public awareness direct campaign. So again and again, I'm finding myself trying to like tackle patriarchy and the consciousness raising I think society really needs and I'm really motivated by through like indirect means. And one of those is through something like the art of phone sex, which is like, oh, like this is the vehicle through which we discover, for instance, men's discomfort with their own sensuality or even with their own voices. Like I hear a lot of men at these workshops sharing privately with me afterwards how fearful they (laughs) makes them, how fearful, how like it's not okay for them to be in their bodies fully. If they're sensual, it will be, it's gay and therefore bad. Mind-blowing, beautiful stuff. I'm really curious about a thousand things, but well, let's start with, um, do you 
think um, that this time has presented you with a unique opportunity uh, in your business? I hope, but I definitely think it represents a unique moment for the themes that I discussed, right? So there's a few themes, for instance, that I think are really resonant around men and sexuality and patriarchy that I can highlight. So one is, for instance, for married men or men who are cohabitating, there's all kinds of decisions that the current crisis thrusts upon you about shares of homework, shares of childcare, shares of like cooking and cleaning. So there's a lot of that. I have a colleague, Andrew Belinsky, who's running like a conscious husband. I think he calls it the Jedi husband program. And it's all about like bringing much more consciousness to these under the underlying kind of patriarchy and the assumptions around who is going to be doing the housework that are being raised. For single men, I think it's really fascinating moment for dating, right? Because the normal bargains that traditional or maybe one could maybe arguably misogynistic or patriarchal dating structures create are no longer in place. Like there will be no sex for you at the end of this date because it's a virtual date and it's like totally out of integrity for you to like sleep with random people. And of course, like there's plenty of single people who are completely ignoring this. This is not news to anybody. I love the idea of forcing people, single people to get to know each other via phone or even turn themselves on in untraditional ways. So like they're forcing a slowness, which I think is like super healthy and juicy. And there's also, I think, an amazing moment of like, there's no money now. Like you can't pay for an expensive date. Like it would be weird to buy someone an expensive thing right now, like as a date. So like all of a sudden you're just kind of left with yourself and you're left with your personality and your words and your, and your presence and how you're showing up around text, et cetera. And I love that. I love that there isn't this kind of like, oh, I just need to get in there, get her to show up at the date. And then I, you know, then we know, we all know what happens after that. And of course, I think that's an equivalent for women to question, as you were saying, their own assumptions about, about dating and about their own sexualities and sexualities. But the other area that I think is really juicy or two areas is, is now I think that there's this huge opportunity for people to discover their like sexuality and freedom in new ways. So like, I never thought I would be the kind of person who had phone sex, but now all of a sudden I'm open to it. That's like the story that I'm getting a lot of, from a lot of attendees to my workshops. I never thought I'd ever go to a sex party, but like I'm now finding myself kind of open to it because of COVID to do a virtual one. So I'm seeing that as well. So like this new openness to exploration from the safety of your home that I'm seeing amongst a lot of people. And I think in general, healthy sexual exploration is good. Like I think it helps us dismantle patriarchy. That's like a kind of core assumption that I held. And then I guess the last one I think is all around solitude and isolation and like what it means to be specifically like a single man is kind of my area of expertise alone. As if there wasn't enough like pornography available, I think like Pornhub like made it like even more available as if that was what was needed. But like, actually, this is an amazing moment for conscious self-pleasure development for like men to like actually wean themselves off of porn. To, I mean, there's, I have colleagues who are really skilled in teaching men to, to engage in conscious self-pleasure, people with Taoist backgrounds and tantric backgrounds and neo-tantric backgrounds at, who are teaching men meditation, who are teaching men conscious masturbation. I hate to use that word, but conscious self-pleasure and self-touch and like actual se- sexual self-cultivation in a really conscious way at this time. And there's, this is so clearly being invited to yeah. me from where I sit. That like, anyway, so yes, I think that there's a big opportunity and for lots of other men's coaches, my colleagues. That's amazing. I was just thinking about like uh, the porn perspective is that you see the kind of the porn as a big part of patriarchy, the, the kind of porn, the porn hub, I suppose. I see 
it's so hard to encapsulate an entire industry because there's a lot of really conscious pornography and then there is a way to consciously consume pornography in the context of like a healthy relationship with your sexuality and just like there's a way to consciously drink wine you know what I mean <laughs> and there's, there's a way to yeah. really not and so like pornography is something that's just been like rapidly and it's very very easy to become addicted to it like i think when people talk about sex addiction a lot of the time these days they're really talking about pornography addiction and when people talk about masturbation as like an unhealthy thing it's because of its connection to pornography i think one of the reasons that like an otherwise much more sexually liberated America still has this kind of like stigma against male masturbation is because it's so completely linked to pornography. We think of women touching themselves and we think of like all these wonderful, like enlightened liberal sex toy companies and how amazing and like tantric self-pleasure rituals. And we think of men touching ourselves. And first of all, we're turned off. Like the act of male self-pleasure is still kind of a big turn off. And it mm -hmm. feels like transactional and exploitative. And I think that's because of these associations with porn. Their patriarchy is wrapped up in pornography because of like the industry itself, the history of the industry and the way that it's consumed, et cetera, especially in the mainstream. And I, the kinds of sex acts that are depicted focus on violence, the focus on intense and aggressive fucking, the kind of skipping over all the other connected parts of sex, but also just the real limitation of pornography as uh, currently mainstream pornography as any kind of a, a source of sexual education or even sexual discovery. Like I think a lot of people are like, oh, well, it's actually really helped me discover my kinks. I don't think that's actually accurate. I think a lot of people are discovering kind of destructive and unhealthy parts of their sexuality and feeding the fire of those. So face slapping and, and abusive porn is really, really easy to just kind of like click on or incestuous porn. And that's actually, you know, it's taboo and therefore juicy. And in the, in the solitude of your own experience of just like being an anonymous clicker, um, it's really easy to go towards those things, towards the taboo. And it's not conducive to like a joyful expression of sexuality. Like let's just like maintain consciousness of North Star. Like a North Star is like a joyful experience of sexuality, something that's joyful. My understanding of most men's experience of porn is that it's not joyful. It might provide a temporary sense of relief. But it's not connection, I guess. Yeah. There's no real not joyful. Like, like it's yeah. also like a kind of like a shitty experience. You like you jerk off to porn and then you kind of feel like oh, that's over. Like I feel like I yeah, you know, I have the like the temporary joy of like the or the temporary, I wouldn't say joy, the temporary like orgasm high and it's almost always shitty orgasms, can we just say it's like male and men have really crappy orgasms in porn. And well, that's then, a thing. Yeah, men have all kinds of different orgasms. You can have cross orgasms, you can have all you can have all you can have energetic orgasms, you can ejaculatory orgasms, you can have like degrees of experience just with ejaculatory orgasms. So if you're just jerking yourself off to porn, it tends to be really shitty ones that are just located in your cock because you're not moving the energy throughout your whole body. You could talk to men, they've had all kinds of different kinds of orgasms. I just current mainstream thought around male sexuality does not take that into account, but it's true. And all sexologists will tell you the same thing. It's not like a woo-woo thing. That's just not main. It's not mainstream knowledge. Yeah, because it does seem that people are more ready to talk about female sexuality, perhaps, than they are to talk about male sexuality. And I was discussing this with my fiance earlier that I find male sexuality can be quite intimidating. Yeah, I don't know if you find that, Janie, but I seem to have kind of yeah, like. It's just interesting. I don't know if you find that with women who um, feel almost threatened by male sexuality. Yeah. I'd take it a step further and say, not only do I find that almost all women have a feeling of threat to male sexuality, but I'd first of all say that that is completely reasonable mm. and rational. Yeah, I suppose. 
You and guys all, are normally stronger and, and, than us. Yeah, and I'd say that men are scared of their own sexuality. We have an association with our sexuality as violent and dangerous. There's a reason that we call it, that men tend to refer to like their engagement with pornography as like a release valve. It's like there's this beast inside me that's like rampage, that wants to rampage and rape throughout the world. And I just take the pressure off so that I can maintain my role in normal society, which is like such a reductive and yet really societally reinforced yeah. notion of male sexuality. And of course there's nuance here. And of course, like the targeted aggressive nature of testosterone and masculine energy and male sexuality is present and there, just like the receptive and submissive elements of feminine sexuality are present and there, like that's actually real. And we could totally, as a society, transcend that through a more nuanced understanding of all of the range of sexual expression. Yeah, so I'd say like overall, like our, our societal understanding of male sexuality is really reductive and that that harms both men and women. So, yeah. and it's totally normal for us to be scared of male sexuality, especially because a lot of men haven't taken the time or even expressed the interest in harnessing it well or responsibly. Or That's like exactly it. They don't have enough mentors or role models to explore that. And we certainly are not taught that in school. Like, right. you know, a, it's a fundamental missing piece in our full development. Yeah. And that's why I think your work is so important, Misha. We're so excited to be able to highlight how important these conversations are to mm. our collective rising. Thank you so much for saying that and noticing it. And now is the time where I highlight there's a context in which my work exists that's really important to highlight. One is the work of like tens of thousands of like tireless sex educators that are just like working in the trenches tend to be unacknowledged. And sex education has really come a long way in the last 20 or 30 years. Like consent is like a huge part of mainstream college culture now in a way that it never, never was. However, pre-college, despite the efforts of a lot of different groups, like sex education tends to be really reductive and really, really inadequate. The Unitarian Universalists got together with Planned Parenthood back in the 90s and created an amazing curriculum for teaching sex ed from literally from kindergarten through adulthood. It's called OWL or Our Whole Lives. And at kindergarten, you start with, it's not okay to touch Susie, Bobby. Susie, it's okay to say no when Bobby touches you, which is like basic bodily autonomy. Like you're not, your body is your own. Here are the impacts that you could have. Like when you touch people, like it's not puberty hasn't hit. And you go up to like puberty and all the way through consent. And then as into adulthood, you get into kink and non-monogamy and like just like the range. And of course, America has been completely inimical to this idea. Like no one, <laughs> it is not mainstream at all. Like people are totally scared of this idea but it's critically important, right? And then there's a bunch of adult sex educators that have been working to have conversations like this and it's slowly becoming more mainstream and slowly becoming more okay. And it happens in weird fits and starts. So a rise of acceptance of female sexuality and female pleasure has been really interesting part. And then there's kind of, yeah, it hasn't really happened as much for men yet. And it's important to me to highlight that this isn't like my good idea. You know what I mean? Like I'm standing <laughs> on the of like a lot of, a lot of giants in sexual education. In the Bay Area alone, the work of Ali Ash is really, really important. Um, Ali has a sociology PhD from Stanford and is a sex educator who runs workshops on everything from like how to eat pussy, like a champ, that's her, her title, to uh, <laughs> navigating non-monogamy, to like how to rock a sex party. And she's been doing this work tirelessly. Marsha Bazinski, who's an advisor of mine on my advisory board, has been doing this. And she had a really, really amazing avenue, which was like 
the way to get to this conversation is actually through non-sexual touch. And so she started popularizing cuddle parties and like creating opportunities for people to experience like conscious touch in a non-sexual environment, in a safe space. And she did that over a decade ago. There's an amazing sex educator named Reed Mialko, who's been incredibly influential going to college campuses. Yeah, Dan Savage in Seattle with his syndicated weekly column. Those are my influences. <laughs> you know? Oh, that's actually something that uh, struck out to both of us. Struck out, Zita was mentioning that you have a, a mentors page on your website and how beautiful it is that you honor the people who have influenced you and helped shape you. And actually, really, I also wanted to ask you, like, how you got into this space. Was it because of a mentor's inspiration? Thank you for that question. I'd say I got into this space as a combination of the Me Too movement and this, what, when Me Too hit, I started running a, uh, workshops supporting men to confront patriarchy and, and hosting exercises where men would like really start like looking at their own like there's just their own histories of consent violations and just like just recognizing that this was actually a massively widespread thing and like helping to shift a kind of general consciousness from I'm a good guy I've never consented violated I've never done anything wrong to oh shit I've actually done a fuck ton of things wrong and I might not have ever even known about them it, Me Too really highlighted this gigantic schism between like how men view the world and how women view the world. And I think one of the biggest impacts is that like women are like, no shit, Sherlock. And men are like, sorry, is that okay for me to say? And men are still walking around with the story of like, if I ever admit culpability to anything, even remotely sexual, I will be held up. I will be martyred on the cross of like moral public outrage and I will never hold a job again. Ooh, which is yeah. banana, right? And then women are like, oh yeah, men have consent violated me all the time. Like I've been hollowed out of the street. Like I've had got, you know, guys do terribly disrespectful things to me all the time. Like, so like there's this huge cognitive disconnect between women's and men's experience of the world and supporting men to like get clear about all these different mini consent violations that like tend to occur really normally or like the word normal tend, like tends to imply some sort of like subconscious approval, but they tend to occur with some level of regularity. I think what's wonderful about Me Too, yes, it's been very polarizing, but it's communication. Like there is that kind of maybe, do you find that it's facilitated the conversations now between yes. men and women? It really has. It started to. And it's also a lot of men that I've heard have, yes, it's facilitated a lot of really important conversations. I'm thrilled with Me Too and I've got nothing bad to say about it. I think an unfortunate blowback response to it has been men associating Me Too with the worst aspects of cancel culture and call out culture and forming opinions that I actually tend to agree with around the most destructive aspects of cancel culture. It's important to create a context in which accountability is possible. Accountability tends not to look like the tarring and feathering of someone for a consent violation. And that's a harder thing to wrap our head around, like how we view people with consent violations, right? So even now, and like, this is really what I want to like, like highlight around that. In really kind of liberal or like in a hyper sex positive communities, the approach that people tend to have is once I've found out that you did anything bad on the internet that you consent violated ever, I'm never going to trust you and I'm going to talk trash about you and I'm not going to be specific about my words. So like a man who publicly admitted to like not disclosing his HSV status to two people before having unprotected sex, which is not okay and a complete consent violation and even arguably sexual assault has become a rapist. This is like a lived experience that I've had with like dozens of men where like I've heard people say, oh yeah, that guy's Disney a fucking rapist. Like, why are you talking to him? 
So we've actively, because we're, we're okay with muddling the definitions, because our society is okay with not being specific. In fact, when specifics are asked for, we're like, how dare you ask for specifics? None of it's okay. Like that approach to me has actually created a world, ironically, that disincentivizes accountability, that disincentivizes men to like accept accountability because we've got no space for them to be in society when they're accountable. Yeah. A zero tolerance approach to sexual assault actually disincentivizes a world without rape. Yeah, I can see that. It's like he's a monster or she's a slut or like, or there doesn't seem to be, I know, of course, there's like shades of gray, but in the kind of popular culture, to me anyway, it seems like yeah. either a man is saying, well, what was she wearing and blaming the victim? Or it seems that it's like hysterical, like you're a rapist and you're a rapist for life. And that's just so extreme on both fronts. Yeah. So because of the stigma around this, there's now, we exist in a very uncomfortable moment where Me Too is successfully and critically highlighted the prevalence of low levels of sexual assault, not just of rape, but of date rape, of common forms of sexual assault within relationship and how common and widespread these things are. All kinds of sexual harassment at work continuing to happen without a simultaneous evolution so like our understanding of the fucked upness of this of sexual assault has evolved but we have not evolved our understanding of justice we've not evolved our understanding of the context in which these things occur and the way to actually prevent them we've just evolved our understanding of how fucking frequent they are and i'm actively working on this with men to like support them to see this was out of integrity you might not even see it she might not have even have told you like these are these subtle ways of like consent violating that you might not even notice, or, and again, she might not even tell you. Also, like working on, like I've done a lot of work around accountability processes, around like what it looks like for a community to actually reintegrate this person, and like calling out like the friends of my, when I see people saying, but isn't that guy a fucking rapist, right? And being like, actually, no, that's not the case. Like differentiate, and this is subtle stuff, you know, it's subtle stuff because like, it's really easy, for instance, to spend all your attention on excusing someone who created sexual assault, creating room for them rather than holding space for like the harm that sexual assault does. You yeah. could go too far the other way. Angelica. And it's all about the forgiveness and the retribution uh, or the reintegration and the prodigal son returning and like, oh my God, isn't it so wonderful that you made a mistake and now we're learning. Like, and that can be triggering for someone who experienced sexual assault at someone's hands. Like, so Me Too is a big factor. And the other big factor is conscious sexuality events and like communal sexual events, like experiencing sexuality in community rather than ha like having the dominant paradigm of sexuality being something you exclusively experience one-on-one -on -one, and that always leads towards some long-term relationship or you have to be very clear, no, this is just a casual sex. Like I actually love the blurring of the line. I love the experience of that in community. And it's, it's sex parties as an educational modality that have really influenced the way that I'm looking at virtual sensuality events because people go to sex parties thinking they're going to have a due time or like a check something off the bucket list. But what they find is that there's actually a huge amount of education about themselves and about other people and about their preconceptions that happen at sex parties. Even if you're just observing, you start for instance, really challenging your own body shame habits and body judgment habits. It's like if you're used to being skinny and only seeing other skinny sexual people and like having that be your exclusive association with what's sexy, then going to a sex party where there's a lot of people who are not traditionally skinny or not traditionally attractive, all having really juicy sex with each other is like 
really transformational and starts really forcing you to question like a lot of your own like ooh I had like a knee jerk disgust to that like let me just feel into that like ooh I had like a that's different for me or like hmm like oh mm, like that's challenging for me like that's been really influential. Wow, that's so interesting to me because I know that like it would <laughs> be quite a leap for me to go to a sex party. It would be, but I'm intrigued by it because sexuality is a cornerstone of us being human and yet in society there's so much shame around it and what you're doing is you're facilitating so much connection and safe connection through that that like you say I do feel like that has ripple effects in culture what would you be able to kind of explain what we would find at one of your sex parties like how it Sure. The events that I'm organizing right now are, are exclusively virtual. So there's two questions there. There's like, what happens at a, at a sex party that like, again, like I'm just going to highlight NSFW in New York City, the Kinky Salon and Mission Control had been pioneering this work, pioneering the transformational properties of communal sexual spaces that are safe and well-regulated for decades, literally decades. A woman named Polly Superstar has been a massive pioneer in this work. Bonobo Tribe in the Bay Area. There's groups in LA as well. And they're conscious of publicity and they're conscious of media. Media tends to be a very bad idea. They tend to misrepresent everything that happens. It's become a meme and a joke that like a reporter goes to a sex party, has like some weird experience, like writes about it from the position of like a deep and unexamined judgment, writes it off as like a lark. I partied with the sex freaks. And like that whole, so it's made most people who organize these things, especially for a living, terribly, terribly distrustful of media and rightly so. There's a gazillion different kinds of sex parties. I cannot express, even the word party isn't a big enough thing to encompass like conscious sexuality events. So just even like a dinner party with like three or four or five people where you're all just like open. Let me just invite you actually, like especially since both of you are like saying that this is like a, a different thing for you or a, a newer thing for you. Rather than sex, I actually want to invite the words sharing erotic energy. Okay. Ooh, love that. I really like that. Yeah. So we can take all the associations with the word sex off the table. Well, for instance, one of the things I've found that like with first time people, especially women going to sex parties, the common assumption is, oh, I'm going to have to have sex with a stranger. Ugh. Yeah, literally, actually, that was an assumption of mine. I was like, oh, gosh, I'm going to have to, like, have sex with someone. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that is, yeah. I, and that is an unexamined, because I didn't realize until you said that, that that was an assumption of mine. That's yeah. interesting. Okay, carry on. Sorry, I interrupted. So, and I'm maybe going to go a step further, which is most, like, there are no sex parties where anybody is forced to do anything. You can literally come in street clothes. There are some sex clubs in Berlin where the bouncers will keep you out unless you're wearing something sexy. But beyond that, you can just come and sit on a bench and watch and leave. Like no one will force you ever, ever, ever to do anything or peer pressure you to do anything. Like everybody understands that first timers who come to anything. Some people come to sex parties just to say hi to their friends. I only go to sex parties that are just community now. I see, you know, 50 people that I know is where I see my friends now because we all share this as a value. We're just a group of people that want to have this as an option, that like enjoy the freedom 
And frankly, I'd say the vulnerability that comes from having this as a way of interacting. Most people, they, people play games. They play silly games. Like a partner of mine and I used to love going to sex parties and just playing log rolls where a bunch of naked people would just roll over each other just for fun. <laughs> like, it was fun. It was just like a silly, fun, stupid thing. It was like vaguely sexy. Sometimes there'd be like a little kissing, but like, why not? You know, it was just like a silly little sexy activity. Like no implications, right? And like one of the things like I was talking about sex parties as an educational medium is like one of the things that sex parties teach you is like the range of wonder that's to be had from sharing erotic energy in non-expectation ways, right? And so like the general, even the motto of one of the sex party communities in San Francisco is high possibilities, low expectations. All kinds of things can happen. Dismantle your structure of knowing that you have any expectation that you're going to have sex, that other people are going to feel entitled to sex with you even, which is a whole thing. Like you thought you might be going into a room where a bunch of men like felt entitled to sex with you because of your presence there, which is like from a male perspective, it's really important to like educate men who come into these spaces. Do not accept that or do not expect that. Do not convey that you have that expectation, right? Sex parties are where we've developed ideas about enthusiastic consent and ideas about affirmative consent first and then enthusiastic consent beyond that. Like sex parties have been like the place where all these things are developed. Sex parties and frankly, queer communities, I should just mention directly. Mm -hmm. We've just been at the pioneer of virtually everything sexual ever. Really? That's interesting. Yeah. 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 Around developing a culture of acceptance around this and then around, you know, interestingly, like I would say like there's notions of consent that are particularly developed in heterosexual dynamics when you've got male energy encountering female energy that you don't have in lesbian or queer or gay spaces um, nearly as much. But then there's all sorts of like, Anyway, so like, I will say that like heterosexual play spaces have had to encounter like unique challenges, especially, and have really developed a language around consent based on the experience of men encountering women, frankly. Okay, yeah. That but knows. I can only answer your question. I feel, I, I don't know, I've been like amazing. So sex party can include like facilitated activities of like eye gazing activities or like conscious massage activities. It can include like very, all different kinds of icebreakers. It can include dancing. Like a lot of times I go to set parties just to, just to dance because it's super dope, dope DJs. Cheese plates card games people go to sex parties and just like play settlers of Catan and up in a corner like in terms of like the sexual interactions generally speaking there are a few sex clubs where it's literally you're kind of like going into specific spaces where it's like explained like there is kind of like an amorphous pile of bodies i personally have never participated in years of going to play parties in any kind of amorphous pile of body type situation like this idea of like this bucket orgy is just not the real experience for 99% of this world. The actual lived experience is human. It's like people get to know each other. It's not anonymous. There's safe sex conversations. There's consent conversations. There's limitations on the types of interactions they're having. People like take time to get to know each other. They don't just like jump into sexual interactions right away with strangers. People tend to go to the same party with the same people month after month after month because they want to get to know a community and they want to be like, oh, I interacted with this guy and then we had some cool flirty texts and then I saw him again and we had a date and then I saw him at the sex party. We had a fun scene at the party. But it's not like, oh, I just met some dude and we like, we're like, hey, you want to do it? I don't know. And you just went. That's not how it works. It's just not how it works because people are people or just people like us. And in fact, it's wonderful to like have the experience of being And then in terms of the actual interactions, like a lot of times you'll find all kinds of like sex acts that you weren't expecting to be witnessed that you won't experience yourself, but that you're witnessing. So you're witnessing people using sex toys or doing kinky things that you wouldn't necessarily be part of your sex life, but you just get to witness, you get to watch. 
people have scenes and they enjoy scenes and they go back to the party and they meet other people or they talk. I've gone to set, like one of the first things I did after I had a breakup like a few months ago was I went to a sex party and just had big men cuddle me, just cuddle me. It was just awesome. Oh, just like the biggest men. I was like, hey, and I knew them all because I knew this was my community. And I was just your brother, you know, I just had a breakup. Can I just get some hugging, some holding? And of course, people are so sex positive. Like people are just like lying around in a big cuddle puddle and they just hold you. That so is so beautiful. beautiful. I want to know more about your life story as well, Misha. Yeah, we love you. <laughs> yeah, I just want to know more about you as a man. So I come from a really privileged background. Like I have a trust fund that allows me to do this work. Otherwise, I'd have to be doing sales. That's kind of my marketing or fundraising. That's my, my professional background. Yeah, that's not true for a lot of other sex educators. So I'm highlighting just a level of privilege there that I think is important and has informed my work. And can I yeah. ask on that? Sorry, Misha. Did you accept that privilege early on or did you kind of struggle with it? Because like you, I grew up. Yeah, you guys have had that in common. We have, I grew up with a trust fund. I don't have to work. I struggled with a lot of guilt around that because of just my conditioning or whatever. And it's been something I've been working on for years. And I spent years feeling guilty about it and not doing good with it. Working jobs because I thought I should work a job that I felt totally drained by because I really knew that I didn't have to work and all of that. But did you have that experience at all or would you just embrace it? Yes, yes, I did. And I think for the first 10 or 15 years of my career, I was following a bunch of normatives and it was mixed up. Like my experience of patriarchal deprogramming and conscious men's work has a lot to do with my privilege and my assignations of my stories about what I needed to be doing as a man, as well as a person of privilege. All that was tied up. Like, and I think even without privilege, a lot of people can relate to the idea of going through the first X number of years of your life with stories about what you need to be doing rather than what you, what truly makes you come alive. And yes, like I struggled with privilege and as a life coach, like I've been coached pretty heavily on how to get past it. And I'd say that like both being trained as a life coach and experiencing really radical transformational life coaching myself through the Academy for Coaching Excellence based in Sacramento and run by this amazing 74-year-old lesbian woman named Maria Emmett, who's like my my lineage for coaching comes from the mantra that I've kind of accepted or is having renounced the luxury of questioning whether I deserve my own privilege. Yeah, right? that's a good um, one. But it did create the space to like say, holy shit, like this guy who's like slightly overweight, super stressed out, like fundraiser working for techie nonprofits and like super stressed all the time and not in his body isn't me. And I have this incredible privilege to become the real me and to like find and discover that in with spaciousness and joy and like, God, like what an incredible privilege and like, holy shit, like I have to give the world that I'm not giving at all. And so I had the 10 or 15 years of life that was really devoted to cause-based work based in part on having privilege and wanting to create an impact, always earning money, not using almost anything from the trust fund, just a little bit like pad, frankly, nonprofit salaries. And frankly, not being very good at it. A lot of people like have these corporate careers and then become like a life coach or something or like a yoga instructor because they were like really good at what they did and weren't satisfied. I actually wasn't very good. I kept on getting fired. I was hitting my numbers, but like I wasn't, I was clearly not doing the thing that I was meant to be doing in life. And like people could tell, like my bosses could tell. I think it made me difficult to work with. I think it, it gave me a short fuse. I was really judgmental. So I kept on being like, shit, like something needs to shift and give. And that was about three years ago. And then I went to Thailand for four months, got in shape, got a lot of life coaching, did some transformational programs, ended up deciding to be a life coach. And now I'm shifting from life coach to sexuality coach and like being like a sex positive, like male straight presenting professional, like is 
the path that I want to walk. And I, I really want to like highlight, like you're, you're catching me at a very, frankly, early stage in my career as that. I've been coaching clients professionally for about a year and a half, only got my certification last November. So like officially as an internationally certified life coach, like this is new, relatively new territory for me, but, and, and I just thought I'd be transparent about that. Well, you're clearly making a huge <laughs> impact very early on to that. You said three years ago, you changed trajectory. Was there a kind of eureka moment for you? Was there a turning point where you just thought, I need to do something different? I got fired from my job again. I had a really good, awesome job. And I was hitting my numbers and killing myself to do it. Just killing myself. With all of that, it wasn't enough. I wasn't doing it. And I mean, I have pretty severe ADD and there's a lot of that tied up in that. But like, that was the moment for me of being like, I something really needs to give here. One of the most challenging aspects of being a sexuality professional is that social media, especially Facebook, tends to even disallow yeah. posts, right? Mm-hmm. Sexuality professionals call it the Facebook ghetto. It's actively disallowed, not to mention stigmatized, not to mention like we could be like various different social media platforms or even payment platforms could like stop accepting my work. Patreon, for instance, would like it make you invisible to anything but putting in the direct URL of where your Patreon, if your content is at 18 plus, you can't Google it even. Um, even even the word putting in the word sexuality prevents me from paying for facebook advertising period is the word sex there's all sorts of different ways that like we our society has made it a lot harder to spread this message and it's not again this is not like a poor me thing i just want to like make that really clear and frankly like because of sesta and falsta like and because of the facebook ghetto like a lot of sexuality professionals who are women who incorporate pro-dom work or other kind of like really really societally important into their practices that is in fact touch-based or interaction-based, have had a massively difficult time and are struggling under corona far, far more than, than I am. So can we jump into, are you plan to take the virtual sex party? There's a lot of opportunity there. I see the, the opportunity in the virtual sex parties. First of all, again, I'm going to just say sharing erotic energy virtually. The idea of the sex party, I think, frankly, has these really, it's hard to predict the connotations that people have and the associations mm-hmm. and they can be like a turnoff. And I think a lot of times a curiosity or like a, you know, let me poke that and see what it is. Even the idea of an online party is kind of like being questioned right now. And I know a lot of people, for instance, I know people who are helping Burning Man, like iterate, like what Burning Man will be. Right. And like they're we're starting to question what it looks like to have a party in remove and like what even is a party. All that said, the virtual sensuality and sexuality events that we've been hosting, again, like started to get quite nervous that Zoom is going to like shut down my account at some point. It's a whole thing, right? Like we're, this is untrod territory. And like, so for instance, I'll just say like, again, I don't want to be evasive and I'm going to get to your question, but like Zoom has an obscenity clause in its user contract. If you click user, you know, to create your account, you agree not to put anything obscene online, right? Like there's a potential that like this is deemed obscene. There's also, by the way, morality clauses and a lot of tech workers, uh, lawyers, doctors, et cetera, contracts. Like the necessity of being anonymous within positive sexuality environments is really important because if your employer finds out that you ever went to a sex party, you can be fired in some cases, depending on the clause, depending on the contract. Especially yeah. if organized a sex party or anything oh. like that, you can be fired because... It's deemed immoral. <laughs> yeah. Right? So like, to me, that's bonkers. Yeah, it um, really is. It's hard for me to talk about this world without talking about the injustices that professionals without my levels of privilege face. And I do my best within these spaces. And I already made mistakes around this by expanding the community without adequate privacy measures, um, according to the community, in place and without like guidelines for privacy. 
to create these spaces safely. And so we're learning as we're going, but we're also trying to be really conscious. And I just want to say like, respecting privacy and safety has to be so central to these things. Privacy and safety imply that something bad or immoral or obscene is happening. And so it's risque, but like, that's not where I'm coming from. But like mm-hmm. the respect for people's need for privacy, given the realities of the world that we live in, I have to respect and I do respect. Not to mention, and this is like, you know, going nowhere, like the fact of like, say a woman goes to one of these parties, gets into her central body, doesn't have an interaction with a specific man, but he like recognizes her face, goes onto Facebook, tracks her down, and now knows everything about her because of Facebook. Oh, wow. All sorts of things, all sorts of concerns. So we've actually paused the parties until we put a bunch more policies in place because it was like, oh, you know, in the first month or so of COVID, like everything was like, oh, oh my God. But now that we're seeing this is like a real thing, we're putting all kinds of policies in place. We're taking a big step back. But people have done that. People have uh, tracked people down and there's been privacy violations, clearly. Well, it's not exactly, it's hard to say if it is a privacy violation because we haven't established the norms yet. So like, I'm not clear that that man knew that he was violating any privacy concern. You know, it's like, I saw you at a party and I thought you were hot, like saying I. Like that's, we haven't created the norm that says that that's not okay. For instance, if it was at a real party or like a, sorry, real, like a, like a physical party, yeah, that's actually, that wouldn't be necessarily the worst thing. It wouldn't be like technically unacceptable. It might be like a little weird, but like not (laughs) privacy violations. Does that make sense? So like we haven't, I want to be clear, like we don't even know what a privacy, like we haven't seen, for instance, any kind of like overt privacy violation of someone being outed. Or something, or someone being like mm-hmm. violated by being like like talking or screenshot in any yeah, way. Like, yeah. But just because we haven't heard of it doesn't mean it hasn't happened. Like reporting mechanisms are still being built for these things, and like even though we've encouraged people to report consent violations to the founders, like we're still two men, like, we don't have like a female team. Like there's a lot that we're building right now. So just does your uh, community understand that it takes a lot of courage and dedication to step up and be in that leadership role? Yes, generally speaking, 100%. Like, because so far we've limited the community to people who kind of tend to understand these spaces and or are curious, but like, yes, in general. And we're crowdsourcing volunteers to support us with all sorts of other things. And we don't have, we're still working on the business model. Like, this is all really early days. But I can say what our experiments, and I've been very consciously using that word, and we've been publicly using that word with our community, because up until now, we've never really had a big incentive to create virtual play parties with the advances in in video sharing, frankly, in video conferencing technology. Like the fact that you can get a hundred people on a high resolution live, live, live stream call with relative ease and the current COVID moment, like I think there really is an opportunity. So people get on and the first thing we do is like help people with technology. You can change your name, like making sure everybody understands you can change your name, making sure everybody understands that you have to have your video on at all times, making sure everybody understands their mute functions, making sure people can switch between gallery and speaker view, making sure people understand like how the room works. Generally speaking, the parties are like composed of like four different rooms that have different things going on throughout the evening. What we've found is that a pretty high level of facilitation is really important that you want someone in charge of every room. First of all, you want a safe, that helps create a safe space. You want people to be easily be able to move in and out of rooms. Sometimes we're, we've been experimenting with closed containers. So like we lock a Zoom meeting room for like an hour because like a specific activity is going to happen in that room. Like we had one in which people were kind of facilitating a turn me on with a specific body part style activity. Use your arm to be sexy or use your shoulder. Let's see some sexy shoulders, you know, just why not? And we found that it's helpful to have like a closed container so people aren't coming out into the room all, you know, randomly. Yeah. Does that make sense? So like we lock yeah, the room, yeah. like, you can leave, feel free to leave, but like you can't just like come in randomly and that helps create like a safer space. 
We've had games of sexy never have I ever. We've had games of truth or dare, sometimes like involving like a stripping component. We've done just some like erotic story shares, just like trading around like people like just sharing erotic stories. And then in the sensuality spaces, we've found that like it's really important to create a space of sensual soundscape and a sensual like visual tableau, as well as a sense of safety from the facilitation. The individual connections, we find it's not useful or not as useful to have like people free to chat with each other verbally, but to do one-on-one chats. And then we, we've been establishing kind of like essential safety protocols around what those one-on-one chats have been. Like for instance, if you chat someone directly and they don't get back to you, that might just be because they didn't notice you. But if you chat them one more time, then that's a no and they don't get back to you, then that's a no, right? So you can't chat with them a third. So structures like that, they're not perfect, but they're just kind of like something, right? We're also, we've also experimented with like ways of putting like your openness to being approached in your name. Oh yeah, oh, you might love that. that. I mean, an article, a uh, red, green. Again, that'll be into Bonobo Tribe. Yeah. For figuring this stuff out and for putting out their virtual consent policy as open source. And we're still figuring that out, right? Like that's worked, but it can be tough to enforce. It depends, you know, there's like party organizers who are professionals talk about socialization speed and enculturation, how people get enculturated into the culture of a specific type of party. What are the guideposts in place? Burning Man is a really good example of this, like training people to, I don't know, shame each other if they see people like throwing trash on the ground or training people to make sure they all have their own water, stuff like that. Like in this case, it would be, training people to be respectful via chat or training people to show up at these parties with like sensual lighting um, on their own bodies so that they're not contributing to a sense of what we found is that like someone coming into these spaces can feel their presence can feel really transactional and extractive if they come in and exclusively watch and from a kind of transactional or extractive way if they're not contributing we don't so like one of the basic ways of contributing is like contributing to the soundscape um, by like essentially exhaling or like like being in your body. Another way is through like costumes or like the sensual lighting arrangement. Another way is by actually being in your body visually and like contributing in an exhibitionistic way, but we don't mandate that. Like someone can just come and just observe and witness politely. What we've found is that it can like, what we've found is that people can be like hesitant to be in their bodies if they think that being in their bodies is just being consumed by someone without that person giving back into the space. We're still feeling out like what it looks like for people to be invited to give back. So for instance, we're experiment like we've experimented with this is waste up space. So like no exposure of genitals whatsoever to create safety. Or this is like a non-nudity space. This is like a very concretely guided or facilitated erotic journey with like a professional who's like, I'm gonna take you all on a journey. This is gonna be more like a tantric experience where like everyone, you can close your eyes, you can be in your body, and we'll all be connected by the screen, but we're not like ogling each other. The use of the spotlight feature is really interesting. Like people can be like really in their bodies and then like the host can like spotlight them and then everybody they know and then everybody else knows what to watch. And that's interesting, but it can also be disruptive if two people are like pinning each other, which is a thing both at dance parties and at sensuality parties, where they're pinning each other and having a dynamic in the larger group space. So much to think about. I know. That's why I'm I see really big anti-patriarchal like implications in this work and in these spaces because of the distance. The distance allows for the safety, which allows for new people who normally wouldn't set foot at an orgy. Totally. Oh, yeah. With sexuality, right? I'm seeing so much new openness. Like, so many people have contacted me and been like, I've never done these kind of, like, physical parties because it's like, what? But, like, I'd totally check out a virtual one, right? Because it's safe. You're at your home. You can just close your laptop. No peer pressure. You're good. 
we haven't experienced like some parties have, have done this like create masquerades have everybody wear a mask change your name wear a mask like we can give you instructions on how to do that and like you're almost virtually you're guaranteed to be anonymous you're still contributing. We've experimented with breakout sessions. We've experimented with one-on-ones. We've experimented like with um, just giving people prompts and giving people prompts to discuss and talk. Even something like everybody go and change into something more comfortable. And people like put on onesies and like soft furry things just for fun. Silly stuff like that. There's, yeah, playful stuff is really important. It's like, it's really important to like have a space for sensuality and then also have a place for play and irreverence. Frankly, all of that's less important than creating a space just for the hardcore exhibitionists to have like actual intercourse on screen or to like stroke themselves or like use a Tachi wand on themselves, like full frontal. Like I'm actually finding that creating spaces for that is less important to me personally than creating like all sorts of like spaces for conscious and gentle and slow sexual exploration. And I'm finding that those places for like hardcore sex totally exist within reason. We can create spaces for them, but I'm just finding that they're like, those spaces are like the most challenging and the most polarizing for newer people, which makes sense. And like, there's just so much potential in this medium for the slower stuff. And it's just as juicy. It's just as sexy. And it's what's needed. I wanted to ask about what you personally would like to be remembered for. Is there anything? Wow. Maybe a hard question. Maybe like, dead? like I love that question. That's a coaching question. It's like how you Is know it? what do you want on your yeah, what do you want written on your epitaph? What do you want people to say about you when you're dead? Really, really just cuts through the crap, you know? It's <laughs> <laughs> a Janie one. <laughs> is that, I'd like people to say that, like, Misha is effectively evolving the national conversation about men and sexuality. I'm doing that with joy, rather than, like, with any kind of normatives. What I've found is, unsurprisingly, that, like, it's far more effective to shift a conversation in joyous, connective, generative ways than it is to just be like, Everyone's got a problem. Men are fucked up. Come take my workshop and be less fucked up. The other side of that coin is not what I'm doing. I'd say the other side of that coin is the pickup artist community. It's called pain marketing. It's like you have a problem because you're not having enough sex, right? Which reinforces a patriarchal notion of like you just should have lots of sex with lots of people and just like use them. So take my workshop and learn how to fuck women, which is also to me like deeply abhorrent. Not because like I don't see like positive elements coming out of the sex, the pickup artist community, which is like frankly a lot of like really, really insecure men like gain some levels of confidence by learning how to accept themselves like a lot of pickup artistry is actually just self-acceptance that's what they teach you it's called inner game it's really weird but like that's what they're talking to men about they're like here's how you like gain acceptance of yourself like get healthy do work that like turns you on it will be easier for you to interact with women when you're like living your best life and like i find like the underlying premise of pickup artistry which is that like ultimately it should be every man's ultimate goal to be able to have sex with whatever woman he wants as fundamentally patriarchal and deeply problematic and fucked up and it just makes me kind of sad for like it's really like that's the bar guys like we've just set ourselves such a low bar as men like really so i'm trying to chart a middle path between that which is not like normatively saying all men have a problem and let me teach you how to be more woke which i think is an immediately like a losing proposition and not to say let's all just reinforce patriarchy by like finding ways to manipulate women into sex surely there's something that we could do that's neither of those two things <laughs> well you you know what i really love the idea of the ro- uh, rolling out the red carpet no okay let's talk about this this is like my favorite concept 
Rolling out the red carpet in the know is a concept that I'm like really juiced about. And basically it means it's a set beyond enthusiastic consent. But I find about the word sexual negotiation or even the word consent is that it still seems to me like you're trying to get one over. It still to me holds people who are sharing erotic energy as in some way on opposite sides of the table, on different teams. Right? Like even like the whole like the idea of like what would I use consent for outside of sexual context? I used it to indicate a tolerance. It's almost like right? you're kind of consenting to your it kind of does a disservice to both parties. It's like he the man's the conqueror and the woman's just giving their power to them. They're like, Okay, you've conquered me. I give my consent. And it doesn't sound joyful. Yeah. And there are very powerful masculine and feminine dynamics that like contribute to a desirability of that kind of like conquering thing. And I like don't want to like ignore that. And the rolling out for the red carpet for the no concept, basically I'm trying to like hold this up as like the actual desired dynamic, whereas consent is the minimum. Like if you don't have consent and especially enthusiastic consent, then obviously you're doing it wrong. And both parties, I would say, are doing it wrong. Right? Like if you're getting into something that you're really not into. You're like, okay. (laughs) Right? And I don't want to put the blame on anybody, but I would say, and like sex parties and frankly, sex in general is not safe for men when they're encountering women who don't have access to their no. I advise all my clients and everybody who takes my workshops, like if you're finding yourself with someone who you can really see doesn't have access to their no and does things they don't want to do, like please don't have sex with that person, no matter what they say. It's not safe for you. It's not safe emotionally for you. Like I don't care if like she's really hot. And like totally is down. Like if you can see that she's not like connected to like what she actually wants, like it's not good. And so like there's just like moral quandaries, for instance, that men come up with. Well, like what if my body and like every one of my instincts is telling me that she really wants more from me than just sex, but all I want from her is just sex, but she's telling me that's okay. Is that okay still? And the answer is no, it's not fucking okay. Because like, listen to your body, tune into your integrity. Your integrity is more than her yes. And consent education inadvertently can enforce this idea that like, no matter what your body's telling you, no matter what your instincts are telling you, no matter what you're seeing in the broader context, if you got the yes, then fucking go for it. And that's terrible advice for like creating a conscious sexuality world or creating a world without rape. You want men to tune into their intuition. You want men to tune into their bodies. You want men to tune into like their broader societal context or the social context of like, what could it mean if I hook up with this person? What do I really see that's true about them? Like tune into all that, right? So rolling out the red carpet for the no is a way of getting at that. It's basically proposing a value system, you know, and again, I'm using heterosexual language and heterosexual dynamics. These are all complicated dynamics and I think everyone should roll out the red carpet for each other's nose. But like specifically within heterosexual sexual dynamics, when men roll out the red carpet for a woman's no, what you're doing is placing the value on a no and actively soliciting it as much as you're trying to get to yes. So rather than like a sales perspective where it's like, let me just find the ways to get to yes. Let me find her yes in this. Let me actually seek out her no as much as possible. So if like sex is is really good and juicy and like happening, you might pause and say like, I just want you to know, like I'm really, I welcome your no to whatever's happening right now. Mm-hmm. and create it that way. If you're getting any kind of pause or hesitancy in any kind of interaction, I welcome your no. If you're making any kind of request for a date or anything, proactively laying the groundwork and stake, and this is the critical part, you stake your reputation within the interaction on having proactively said, I want your no, or I welcome your no, or I'd love to, you know, because then if she gives you a no and you react badly, you're already out of integrity. And so what you're doing is, is showing the person across from you that you're willing to stake your reputation on how on handling any kind of a no well. 
Oh, I love that so much. And there was something you said as well about it's knowing that she trusts you enough to say no, to trust that if she says no, you'll still find her desirable. Thank you for mentioning that one as well. That is beautiful. Misha, I know you have to leave. Is there anything that you want to promote? Yeah, checking out my phone sex workshops is the best way for people to just kind of get to know me, get to know my teaching style. If they're interested in coaching or if they're interested in these parties, I highly recommend taking my workshop as kind of like a preliminary step for discovering their sensuality online. And those are all posted on my website. Yeah, we will put those in the... Everybody can go to my website, (laughs) It's fantastic. Truly a treasure trove. I still, uh, yeah, I bookmarked a lot of your links and stuff already, so... I've got more reading to come. Yay. Thank you so much, Misha. This has been amazing. Yes. Thank you so much for your time. And I will see you at your advanced version of your uh, phone sex workshop. I'm looking forward to it. Yes. It'll be offered at some point in the next month. Okay. Well, count me in. Thank you so much for listening to Living Off Course. For links to any resources, books, etc. that we mentioned in the show, please check out the show notes on our website, livingoffcourse.com. And to stay up to date with our latest episodes, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and other podcasting platforms. Thank you so much again, and we look forward to seeing you next week.